Norman Centuries, Episode 1, Rollo and the Viking Age. Hello, I'm Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, the forgotten Byzantine Empire that rescued Western civilization. I want to turn this time to the Normans, a people who in their day dominated the Mediterranean, but whose story remains at best only half known. As always, a word of caution before I begin. Despite my heritage, my Norwegian is tentative and my French nearly non-existent. So, though I'll do my best with pronunciation, my apologies in advance for the words I mangle. The Norman story is above all one of adventure, and a sensational one at that. If you're the sort that likes dates, then Norman history begins in 911 in a small field in northern France and continues till 1194 when the last Norman king of Sicily sailed away into exile. In the course of those two centuries, the Normans launched a series of extraordinary conquests, blazing across the face of Dark Age Europe. They transformed Anglo-Saxon England into Great Britain, set up a powerful crusader state in Antioch, conquered southern Italy and Sicily, and turned Palermo into the dazzling cultural and economic capital of the western Mediterranean. The most astounding thing is that virtually all of this was done by a handful of men, who started out life with nothing more than ambition. These individuals arrived on the rough-and-tumble medieval stage, and through sheer force of their personalities, dramatically shifted the course of history. They lived in a world where the old order was passing away, and the clever had seemingly unlimited possibilities. For the bold among them, no ambition was too lofty, and no dream was impossible. They were the great rags-to-riches story of the Middle Ages, and a ferocious example that in the new world of the 10th century, you need not accept the limitations you were born into. As one historian has said, between Caesar and Napoleon, Europe would see no greater adventurers. So who were these Normans? Despite their prominence, there's an air of mystery to them. They settled in France and can most famously be seen on the Bayeux Tapestry, but were not strictly French. Their most famous king ruled over England, so they can just as easily be called English, but for that matter, they can also be seen as Norse or even Italian. To add to the confusion, posterity can't even really agree on whether they were heroes or scoundrels. In England, for example, they're remembered both as the founders of the modern state and as the oppressive villains in the story of Robin Hood. Their origins, however, are thankfully not as mysterious. They began as Northmen, that is, men from the north, Vikings from what we today call Scandinavia. The great ancestor of the Normans was a crafty Norwegian named Hrolf, and his story begins with a sudden eruption of Scandinavian raiders into civilized Europe that has become known as the Viking Age. What exactly caused the Vikings to leave their homes and terrorize the rest of Europe is a matter of some debate, but the onslaught officially began in 793. In that year, monks of the English monastery of Lindisfarne reported seeing fiery dragons flashing across the night sky. A few days later, a ship with a dragon-headed prow pulled itself up on the beach and disgorged a band of wild men bearing wicked axes and rune-covered swords. Sparing neither the old nor the infirm, they ravaged the monastery, seizing whatever looked valuable and left the bodies of the monks trampled, as a cleric later wrote, like dung in the streets. It was a story that would be repeated many times in the days to come. 
For the better part of two centuries, European prayer books would contain the plea, O Lord, spare us from the fury of the Northmen. The Vikings were terrifying for a number of reasons. Unlike the majority of Western Europe, they weren't Christianized. They recognized no church sanctuary and showed no mercy. Worshipping their terrible berserker god Odin, the one-eyed raven deity who inspired divine madness, these hulking warriors seemed to feel no pain and would attack with teeth and nails when their weapons were gone. Clothed in the skins of wolves or bears, they appeared like something out of a nightmare of the frozen north. Even more frightening was their mobility. This was mostly thanks to a clever Viking innovation in shipbuilding. Instead of using a keel to stabilize their ships, they made them wide so they wouldn't capsize. This had the added benefit of allowing them to sail up rivers, putting even inland cities in danger. There seemed no limit to Viking wanderlust. Sailing to the west, Norse adventurers colonized Iceland, Greenland, and eventually the New World. In Ireland, they founded the city of Dublin. In Muslim Spain, they seized the city of Seville. In Africa, they raided the Moroccan coast. And in Italy, they even managed to sack what they thought was Rome, though it turned out to be in reality the city of Luna. The inhabitants of England fared even worse. Viking raiders overran York, captured London, and butchered at least two English kings as a sacrifice to Odin. Other Vikings sailed east and found their way to the Black Sea, where they were daring enough to try an attack on mighty Constantinople. Called the Rus by the Byzantines, these Vikings carved out settlements among the Slavic populations and gave their name to the land of Russia. The bulk of Viking activity, however, took place in what is today northern France. They were, after all, pirates, and there was no more tempting target than the Frankish Empire. By the year 800, it looked as if the great Western dream of restarting the Roman Empire had become a reality. The Frankish King Charlemagne had hammered together the lands of France, Germany, Switzerland, and northern Italy into a single state, and the Pope had crowned him emperor of this new holy Roman Empire. Trade flourished, learning was revived, and wealth poured into Frankish treasuries. Charlemagne built a magnificent palace at his capital of Aachen that was based on the imperial one in Constantinople, dazzled his subjects with a court that seemed to drip with gold, and even proposed to the Byzantine empress in a bid to unite the lands of the old Roman Empire. At his death in 814, it looked as if the Pax Romana would dawn again under Frankish auspices. Unfortunately for the Franks, however, none of Charlemagne's family ever quite measured up to him a fact made painfully obvious by the nicknames their depressed subjects gave them. Charlemagne's son got the best of the lot as Louis the Pious, but it went downhill from there. After Louis came Charles the Bald, Louis the Stammerer, Charles the Fat, Louis the Blind, and so on. Guided by feeble rulers and hopelessly divided, the Frankish lands were wealthy and weak, a lethal combination, which quickly attracted the attention of the predatory Vikings. By the end of the century, it had gotten so bad that many coastal towns had to be abandoned, and even Paris had been briefly occupied. The helpless Frankish kings, unable to match the Viking speed, resorted to a disastrous policy of bribing the invaders to leave. But this only bankrupted the treasury, and convinced the Vikings that the Franks were weak. In 880, the ultimate humiliation occurred when Charlemagne's old capital of Aachen fell to the invaders and its citizens were forced to watch as Viking horses were stabled in the magnificent palace chapel. 
The Frankish king responded to the crisis, as he did to most others, by sending along a massive payment, and the now fabulously wealthy Vikings lumbered off, struggling to carry all their loot. Not for long, however. Five years later, they were again at Paris, this time with an army 30,000 strong, intending to thoroughly loot the city. It's during this siege that we get our first glimpse at the man whose descendants would dominate both ends of the European continent, and whose distant relative still sits on the English throne. He's known to posterity as Rollo, which is the Latin form of the Norse Rolf. According to legend, he was of such enormous size that the poor Viking horses couldn't accommodate him, and this earned him the nickname Rollo the Walker, since he had to go everywhere on foot. In any case, the siege of Paris was eventually ended when the French king, as usual, caved in and offered a huge bribe, and Rollo wandered off to plunder Burgundy, spending the better part of two decades presumably enjoying the wine. The French king was relieved to have him gone, but in the summer of 911, Rollo returned and made another wild stab at Paris. When this failed, he decided to try his luck with the smaller city of Chartres. The French army dutifully marched out to meet him, and a ferocious battle began. Just when the Vikings were on the point of winning, the gates flew open and the bishop came roaring out, cross in one hand, relic in the other, and the entire population streaming out behind him. The sudden arrival turned the tide, and by nightfall Rollo was trapped on a hill to the north of the city. The tired Franks decided to finish the job the next morning and withdrew, but the crafty Viking was far from beaten. In the middle of the night, he sent a few hand-picked men into the middle of the Frankish camp and had them blast their war horns as if an attack were underway. The Franks woke up in a panic, some scrambling for their swords, some scattering in every direction. And in the confusion, the Vikings slipped away. With the dawn, the Frankish courage returned, and they hurried to trap the Vikings before they could board their ships. But once again, Rollo was prepared. Slaughtering every cow and horse he could find, the Viking leader built a wall of their corpses. The stench of blood unnerved the horses of the arriving French, and they refused to advance another step. The two sides had reached an effective stalemate, and it was at this point that the French king Charles the Simple made Rollo an astonishing offer. In exchange for a commitment to convert to Christianity, and a promise to stop raiding Frankish territory, Charles offered to give Rollo the city of Rouen and its surrounding lands. Though the proposal outraged Frankish opinion, both sides had good reason to support it. The policy of trying to buy off the Vikings had virtually bankrupted the Frankish Empire. More than 120,000 pounds of silver had disappeared into Viking pockets, an amount which was roughly one-third of the specie of France. There was simply no more gold or silver to mint coins, and the population was growing increasingly resistant to handing over their valuables to the imperial tax collectors. Even worse for Charles, the Viking raids had seriously undercut his authority. It was impossible for the sluggish royal armies to respond to the Viking hit-and-run tactics, and more and more of his subjects put their trust in local lords who could offer immediate protection, rather than some distant, unresponsive central government. The authority of the throne had collapsed, and now it was the feudal dukes who held real power. Another siege of Paris, Charles was well aware, would be the final straw to send him toppling from the throne. Here, however, was a solution that promised to make all the headaches go away. Who better to stop Viking attacks than the Vikings themselves? By gaining land, this formidable Rollo would be forced to stop other Vikings from plundering it. 
The nuisance of coastal defense would be his problem, and Charles could focus on other things. For his part, Rollo was also eager to accept the deal. Like most Vikings, he had probably gone to sea around age 15, and now, perhaps in his 50s, he was ready to settle down. Local resistance was becoming stronger, and there was little more to be gained in spoils. After decades of continuous raiding, the coasts were virtually abandoned, and wandering further inland risked being cut off from the ships. Here was an opportunity to reward his men with that most valuable commodity, land, and to become respectable in the process. Rollo jumped at the chance. The Treaty of saint clair sur as it came to be known, created the Terra Normanorum, the land of the Northmen. This treaty of the Northmen's duchy, or Normandy, was formally agreed to at a meeting between the two protagonists. The Viking warlord agreed to be baptized together with his entire army, and to perform the ceremonial act of homage to King Charles. Unfortunately, this last part was carried out with a certain lack of grace. The traditional manner of recognizing a feudal lord was to kiss the royal foot, but Rollo wasn't about to do any such thing. When Charles stuck out his foot, Rollo ordered one of his warriors to do the deed for him. Shrugging, the huge Norseman grabbed the king's foot and yanked it up to his mouth, sending the hapless monarch sprawling onto his back. It was, had they only known, a fitting example of the future relationship of the Norman dukes to their French overlords. Charles hoped that his grant of land was a temporary measure that could be taken back later. Such things had been done before, and they never lasted beyond a generation. In Rollo, however, he had unwittingly found a brilliant adversary. Rollo instantly recognized what he had, a premier stretch of northern France possessed of some of the finest farmland in the country. His genius, and that of his descendants, was a remarkable ability to adapt, and in the next decade he managed to pull off the extraordinary feat of transforming a footloose band of raiders into successful knights and landowners. Rollo understood, in a way that most of those around him did not, that to survive in his new home he had to win the loyalty of his French subjects. That meant abandoning most of his Viking traditions and blending in with the local population. Taking the French name Robert, he married a local woman and encouraged his men to do the same. Within a generation, the Scandinavian language had been replaced by French, and Norse names had virtually died out. The Normans never quite forgot their Viking ancestry. Saint Olaf, the legendary Scandinavian king who became Norway's patron saint, was baptized at Rouen, and as late as the 11th century, the Normans were still playing host to Viking warbands. But they were no longer the raiders of their past, and that change was most clearly visible in their army. Viking forces always fought on foot, but the Normans rode into their battles mounted. Charges from their heavy cavalry would prove irresistible, and carry the Normans on a remarkable tide of conquest that stretched from the north of Britain to the eastern shores of the Mediterranean. One final change took longer to sink in, but was no less profound. Christianity, with its impressive ceremonies, appealed to Rollo, probably more out of a sense of opportunity than conviction. His contemporaries could be forgiven for thinking that Odin had given way to Christ suspiciously easily. After discovering that a white garment was given to those who received the sacrament, some of Rollo's men were caught having themselves baptized numerous times. And in fact, 
The last glimpse we get of Rolo is of him hedging his bets for the afterlife, sacrificing a hundred prisoners to Odin and donating a hundred pounds of gold to the church. Christianity may have sat lightly on that first generation of Normans, but it took deep root among Rolo's descendants. There was something appealing to their Viking sensibilities about the Old Testament, even if the New Testament with its turning the other cheek wasn't quite as attractive, and they took their faith seriously. When the call came to aid their oppressed brothers in the East, they would immediately respond. Norman soldiers provided much of the firepower of the First Crusade. When Rollo finally died around 930, he left his son an impressive legacy. He had gone a long way towards turning his Viking followers into Normans, and an occupied territory into a legitimate state. For all that, however, troubling clouds loomed on the horizon. Normandy's borders were ill-defined, and it was surrounded by predatory neighbors. Its powerful nobles had bowed to the will of Rollo while he was alive, but they saw little reason why they should extend the same loyalty to his son. Most worrisome of all was the French crown, which eyed Rouen warily and was always looking for an excuse to reclaim its lost territory. Whether Normandy would prosper, or even survive at all, was up to Rollo's descendants. Join me next time when I turn to his grandson Richard, who was the first to claim the title of Duke, had to fight for every inch of his inheritance, and earn the nickname Richard the Fearless. Norman Centuries is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West, and creator of the 12 Byzantine Rulers podcast. Visit us online at normancenturies.com.